scripture reading for today is from Exodus chapter 32, verses 1 through 14. Exodus 32, beginning at verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who has brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast of the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, With evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them? in the mountains, and to consume them from the face of the earth. Turn from your burning anger, and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Gene. Let's pray and get to work. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this passage and for its um, history in my own life and for the opportunity to teach it to people I love. And I pray that whether in this room or watching right now over the Internet or those who will listen in the future, that you will just speak now powerfully, that you will uncover those things in our lives that control us and the things that are not only dishonoring to you, but things that make a real mess. And so help us today to hear from you. We, we welcome your instruction, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder how long it's been since you've uttered words like these. What was I thinking? Or, why does this bother me so much? Or, how come I can't just get over this? Or, man, I didn't realize what kind of a hold this thing has on me. Those kind of statements are reflective 
of an internal struggle, a battle that takes place within our soul. And maybe you know somebody, or maybe it describes you, or maybe you can think back of a time in your life when words that would describe you would be the following, out of control, reckless, dangerous. Words that reflect a person who just is crazy. I mean, maybe maybe you, you, you got done with a conversation with somebody and said to a friend or spouse, man, he's crazy. And you don't mean funny. You mean seriously, like dangerous. Like this thing has got him or her. Or, or maybe it's just even a little more subtle than that. Maybe there's this, this burning desire within you that you just want to be happy. I mean, you just want to be happy. You thought your life would, would be like this. And it's not. And so you just, you, you're on relentless pursuit to be happy. Maybe you wanted to, you want to be successful. Or if I was to drop a microphone in your soul, you would say, I just, I just want to be loved. I want someone just to love me. Or I just want to be accepted. Or I just want to be attractive. Sometimes in moments of clarity, you may just talk to yourself and say things like, what is the big deal with this with you? And yet the reality is there's this, this war, this battle, this struggle that's going on. Sometimes it's just this lure. And other times it just looks like absolute lunacy. When the Bible talks about this internal drive that I'm describing as lure and lunacy, it uses the word idolatry. And today I want to talk about that lure and lunacy of idolatry through Exodus 32, one of the best examples of the craziness and the consequences of misplaced desires that become deadly. This is the story of the golden calf. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10 that these sort of stories are in the Bible in order that we might not desire evil as they did. So don't you dare do this. Don't you dare read Exodus 32 and go, bunch of immature Israelites. What are they thinking worshiping a golden calf? Don't you dare do that. Today what we're going to do is I want to show you Exodus 32, show you what happened, and then I want to take a step back and talk about what, what is the deal with idols. Why were idols and why are idols so appealing and attractive? And then third, make a bridge into So what does this mean for us? What does this mean for you? In other words, I want you to think about why do the things in your life control you so strongly? So first, what happened in Exodus 32? Remember that the book of Exodus is not just a collection of stories of Israel. It is a theological book designed to tell us something about God. There's a message there that's communicated through narrative. And Exodus 32 marks an abrupt shift. In the previous chapters, we've seen instructions regarding the tabernacle. We've seen fine, intricate detail from the color of the draperies to the kind of um, artifacts and um, accoutrements that are to be inside the tabernacle to the, the robe that the priest is to wear And then all of a sudden, we have this huge slamming shift in chapter 32 where we see one of Israel's signature failures. 
And I want to remind you that it was only just a few chapters ago, chapter 24, that at the base of the mountain, after God spoke, that Israel said this, everything the Lord says we will do, we will be obedient. That's chapter 24. Chapter 32 is make us gods because we don't know what happened to Moses. And that unbelievable fast shift from a pledge of allegiance to downright idolatry, that's the story of the human heart. Today we see the challenge of idolatry as expressed in this story of the golden calf. Verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, we believe this is 40 days, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up! Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So this was not a suggestion. This was probably a mob, a bit like a coup. A bunch of people come to Aaron and they say, look, Moses has been gone 40 days. We don't know what's going on. Apparently he's not coming back. So we need gods. So therefore, make us some gods. So Aaron acquiesces. Verse 2, Aaron said to them, take off the gold rings the rings of gold that are in your ears, your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. And so they took all these, this, this, these, this gold material, brought it to Aaron. Verse 4, he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. This, this calf was a familiar god in the ancient Near East. So it wasn't just like randomly chosen. The calf was, was viewed like a conduit to the world of the gods. And they said, this is likely, the word they is likely referring to those people who had instigated sort of this rebellious moment. They said to them, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So they point to this calf and say, these are your gods. They didn't really think that the calf actually brought them out of Egypt, but rather that this calf is serving as a conduit to a god they can no longer envision, who isn't speaking to them, and whose main representative, Moses, is nowhere to be found. Aaron is in a hard place. Verse 5, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Here's what I think Aaron's doing. The people are out of control. They're, they're worshiping a, a, a golden calf. And so Aaron tries to bring in elements of Yahweh worship into this thing and says, tomorrow will be a feast to the Lord. In other words, what's happening here is Israel is trying to pursue two paths at the exact same time. They're still trying to be God's people, Yahweh people, but they're also now worshiping this golden calf. And Aaron is trying to straddle the fence between these two positions the challenge is is this is not going to work the feast of the lord turns out to be a bad scene verse 6 tells us they offered these burnt offerings they rose up early the next day they offered burnt offerings and they brought peace offerings and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That word play is a loaded term. The NIV translates it as revelry. In the Old Testament, that word is used to describe Isaac's relationship with his wife, Rebekah. When 
There was this time in Isaac's life when he lied about his relationship with his wife because he was fearful of what would happen to him. And so they were in the, the court of a Philistine king. And so he said, it's my sister. And so she got brought into the harem of the king. And then one day they're out in the courtyard, Isaac and Rebecca just talking. And the king looks out and he's like, oh, they're not just talking. They're laughing and kind of, kind of playing. They're being a little flirtatious. And he's like, wait a minute, that's your wife. And whatever it was that was going on there, that's the same Hebrew word. It's also the word that uh, Potiphar's wife uses for the kind of mocking, somewhat sensual mocking, that she accused Joseph of doing towards her and all of Egypt when his advances were rebuffed by her. So whatever that word play means, it's not kickball. <laughs> it's not Red Rover. And they're not doing the Cupid shuffle at this event, okay? This, there's something a little more that's going on here. What's happening is there's some sort of self-centered and likely sensual activity taking place. Verses 7 to 10, the shift, the scene shifts. It shifts to God's perspective on all this. Verse 7, the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly from the way I commanded them. They've made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it. So God tells Moses, Moses can't see any of this. And as a result, God is going to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. Verse 9, the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people. Behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, that I may consume them in order that I make it, may make a great nation out of you. In other words, God is going to press a reset button and start over like he did with Abraham. He's going to do that for Moses. That's how angry God is at this. Verse 11, it's a great scene of compassionate servant leadership. Moses appeals to the Lord to not do that, citing his name, his reputation, the glory of God in the world. In verse 14, the Lord relents from the disaster that he was going to bring on Israel. Moses then begins to move down the mountain. Verse 15. He grabs the two tablets the tablets that God had written, the tablets regarding the, the ten words, the ten commandments. He meets up with Joshua. They hear the noise in the camp. They come down on the base of the mountain. And verse 19, at the sight of the calf and the dancing, Moses understands why God was so angry. Verse 19, as soon as he saw As soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot and he threw the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. This is a symbolic act. It's not just because he's upset, but the people have have broken the covenant with their God. It only took them 40 days. I mean, I must have, it has to be in in Moses' mind and heart. He must have been thinking, are you kidding me? It was just 40 days ago, and we're, we're in this beautiful moment. We're, we're thinking about the glory of God, and He's speaking, and you're trembling, and you're saying, whatever He says we will do, it only takes 40 days. And now we got this. No wonder He broke the tablets. Because they'd broken it. They'd broken God's heart. They broke God's law. They broke the covenant. Moses grabs the calf. He burns it, pulverizes it, spreads it on the water, makes the people drink it. And then he confronts Aaron. It's a sad 
dark moment. I imagine Aaron would love to cut this section out of the record. Verse 21, Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? Just hear the the stunning outrage. Aaron said to them, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, and they're set on evil. (laughs) You know the people, Moses. They're, They're sinful. They're wicked. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. And then he throws this part in. As for Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. I can imagine Moses like, you blaming this on me? So I said to them, let anyone who has gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. <laughs> what in the world? I mean, at least you can think of a good excuse. We just had this gold, we threw it in. What? Just... Verse... 25 provides the following summary. Now when Moses saw that the people were out of control, and notice this comment, for Aaron had let them get out of control to be a derision among their enemies. Somewhere in your minds, just mark it down, if you're in any position of spiritual leadership, if you have children in your home, if you're a parent, if you're a small group leader, part of your responsibility is to help people with the idols of their heart. Moms and dads, let me specifically talk to you. We have, a, we have a limited window to help our children with the idols of the heart because who in the world is going to talk to them about the idols of their heart when they turn 25? I mean, it's a parent's responsibility to say, look, bro, I love you, you're my son, but the fact of the matter is this is way too important to you. You've got an idol, man, and it's like coming out. Or to say to our, our, our children, look, honey, I know, I know you really want this, but you need to know that that little thing, the desire that just makes you want to just kick and scream and pout, that thing, that's called an idol. And that thing will control you. It will ruin you later on in life. And who's, who's going to say those kind of things to our kids when they're 25? Part of the responsibility of parents, part of the responsibility of, of, of spiritual leadership is to talk to and speak into the issue of the idols of the heart. The result of this was Levites were called and they were instructed to go throughout the camp and 3,000 people died, presumably those who were the leaders of this insurrection. It's verses 25 to 29. And then the final element of the story is is Moses' atonement that he seeks on behalf of the people. Look at verse 30. This is a, a precious text. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and I will now go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people have sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. In other words, he's asking for his own life to be given. Moses becomes a a bit of a type of Christ who will make atonement for his people. But God rejects that offer. He says, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. College Park, this, this is a story of God's discipline for idolatry. 
the lure of security and the lure of fulfillment surfaced in Israel's desire to make a god by their own hands, and it led them into spiritual lunacy. They're crazy. I mean, 40 days, and suddenly they're panicked. They, they need a God. They feel insecure. They want control. And here are people who go from the, in awe of worship and respect for who and what Yahweh is to outright rebellion. And listen to me. This is what idols will do to you. It'll make you swing from singing, hear us from heaven, open the blind eyes, and then tomorrow you are consumed with this desire to use the good things that God has given and you use them to fill up an aching hole within your heart. This is the lure, this is the lunacy of idolatry. And <clears throat> lest you think that this text is just about Israel, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 reflects on stories like these, and here's what he says. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. So it goes through all these stories and say don't just read these as stories, receive them. Now these things happened to them as examples but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, here's why I chose this text for this verse, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Meaning, don't you dare read Exodus 32 and go, that's crazy, they're idol-worshipping Israelites. How stupid can they be? The fact of the matter is, is idols are still a big deal. What was I thinking? Why does this control me so much? How come I can't let go of this? Why does this grab a hold of me? Or, if you live with somebody, in the back of your mind, if you live with somebody who, who's, who's like this, in the back of your mind, you're thinking, why can't they just get over this? Why does this have a hold on them? Why does this have to be so much a part of our life? It's idolatry. Let me help you understand what idols are all about. You might think that idols were just something that plagues the Old Testament, but there's all kinds of idols in our present day as well. And it would help you to be able to identify present-day idols by understanding what the lure was or the attraction was of idols in the Old Testament. Doug Stewart has a great commentary on Exodus. And in, in his commentary, there's this long article called The Attractions of Idolatry. I read it about two months ago in another section, and I marked it because it was so incredibly helpful as to what is the big deal with idols. Let me summarize this article for you. He has like seven or eight points. I boiled it down to four. What is the deal with idols? Here's the deal with idols. You ready? Number one is this. Idols are involved with self-interest. Or maybe a better way to say it. The reason that we go to idols is because we are concerned about ourselves. Nobody worships an idol for the idol's sake. People worship idols because of what they believe that idol will give them. It is a quid pro quo. I'm going to give you this and you're going to give me that. 
In the ancient Near East worldview, an idol served as a portal to the realm of the gods. And the gods were powerful. They controlled uh, fertility and rain. They controlled abundance and wealth. Any blessing that came, it came only because of the gods. But there was one thing the gods couldn't do. The gods couldn't feed themselves. And so therefore, in order for the gods to survive, they needed food. Human beings brought them food. And in return, the gods were obligated to give the people blessings. And so there was this constant two-way street of mutual self-interest. The gods needed food, and the people on earth needed blessing. So you bring the gods food, and therefore you get blessing. The more food you bring, the more blessings you get. If a human fed the god, then the god was obligated to bless him or her in return. This is the way, from the ancient near perspective, this is the way the universe worked. And so if you wanted any kind of abundance, any kind of blessing, you had better feed the gods. Embedded in all of this is a fundamental self-centeredness. Which is no wonder why the Apostle Paul says this in Colossians 3.5. Put off covetousness, which is idolatry. You get below idolatry and you'll find covetousness. So you want to know why you want what you want? You want to know why you can't let go of this thing? You want to know why you keep going back to this thing? You want to know why you keep going back and forth and back and forth? And even though there's all sorts of bad things and consequences, and as though at times you're like crazy, the reason is because of what you want. There's something embedded in that idol that you want. You want, you want, you want. That's why you're willing to do anything to get it. Ten years from now, you look back at your life and go, what was I thinking? And that's the problem. You weren't, you weren't thinking. You were just wanting. That's the issue underneath. We want what we want, what we want, what we want. Secondly, idols are incredibly convenient. In the ancient Near East, there was no defined moral code. You could do whatever you wanted, just as long as you then sacrificed to kind of balance out the scales. And so, therefore, life essentially didn't have any ethical boundaries. The sum total of your religious life was just whatever you sacrificed to the gods. As long as you could keep the gods happy by virtue of your sacrifices, you could live however you wanted. And so, therefore, there was a huge disconnect between ethics and sacrifice. It's really convenient. You can just live how you want and then just keep sacrificing. As well, there were, there were idols on every hill and under every spreading tree. If you've ever been to a, a country like India, for instance, I remember being there. And under nearly every tree, there were little candles that were being lit. So therefore, it was very convenient. You didn't have to travel to Jerusalem. You didn't have to travel to some city. You just gave a sacrifice underneath a tree under every, over every high hill, and it kind of wiped your slate clean. You could live how you wanted and give sacrifice. You could live in both worlds. Oh, how many times we have seen this and felt this way. We have one personality, one attitude on Sunday, but we have this whole other persona the rest of the week. We have this way that we live when we come to worship with God's people, but we have all these other things that we want and desire over here. Oh, I want to worship Christ. I want to love him passionately, but I also want my money and I want my sex and I want my uh, affections and I want my kids to think I'm wonderful and I want the family just the way that I want it and I want, I want, I want, I want, I want it. And we want to have both. Third, idol worship was normal. And that makes it really, really challenging. This is the normal way to live. So embedded in the ancient Near East culture was this mindset 
of idol worship that to think that you'd worship one God and only one God, that would be completely countercultural and extremely illogical. In fact, if you were an Israelite and you had interviewed a Canaanite farmer, how do you farm in this land? He would have told you about how to actual, actually plant crops and the, and the way, what crops will grow where and where's the best fields to be able to put your sheep or your oxen on. But along with that, he would have also told you, and equally as important was be sure that you sacrifice to Baal and Asherah. Because sacrificing to Baal and Asherah were the ways that you pulled the levers for rain and fertility. And in their minds, unless you did these things, your crops weren't going to grow. Your cattle were not going to be fertile. This is the way the universe works. You might compare it to maybe things in medicine that we used to think, this is the way you're healed, and now we find out, no, 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 no. That not only didn't work, it's actually destructive. I mean, you realize since the 19th, just around the 19th century, doctors stopped bloodletting. I mean, if you were sick, had a sore throat, you had acne, I did a little research on this. It's crazy all the things. You had a cold, they'd go and take a 30-year blood out of your body. Get ready to go into surgery. Need to have a cyst removed or something or an amputation. They removed half of your blood so you wouldn't swell. You need the blood to live. People died because of the bloodletting, but they thought this is the way people are healed. After all, this is what people have done for centuries. But then we find out it's absolutely wrong. But this is the way we see the world. It's right when you're in the 1800s, the 1700s, the 1600s. And this is how the people in the ancient Near East viewed their crops. Look, the way it rains is you sacrifice to Baal. The way your cattle are fertile, you sacrifice to Ashtoreth. So this is just the way that things are. Here's the other crazy thing. Is that the people of Israel never really fully abandoned the worship of Yahweh. They always viewed Yahweh as sort of their national God. And in the ancient Near East, people had different levels of God. There was like the national God, and then there were like personal day-to-day gods. They have national gods that are like overseeing the entire nation. But then you have like gods on the street who are helping you with where you really live. And so what Israel constantly did is they, they always kept Yahweh as their national God. That wasn't their problem. Their problem was they added other practical gods to their life. They added other little idols Oh, sure, God, Yahweh was great, but he wasn't really practical to meet my needs. Oh, sure, he's, he's, he's the God who rescued us out of Egypt, but straight up, we got our crops I have to grow. Israel's problem was that they kept adding additional gods to the worship of Yahweh. It's not that they outright abandoned Yahweh. No, they just added other gods. They had a collection, a smorgasbord, a potluck, a pitch-in of gods, if you will. Just want to taste and sample. And then finally... And this is not surprising, but it's most concerning. Remember, about 10 years ago, I discovered this, and I couldn't believe it. The worship of idols was incredibly pleasurable. And of course it is. What the enemy did is he makes the worship of these gods fun, enjoyable, and even sensual. Idolatry was tangible. You you, you could actually see the golden calf. You could touch the golden calf. You can't see God. So it felt like it was real because you could touch an idol. Uh, Secondly, an idol, when you sacrificed to it, you, you gave it meat. And nobody in the ancient Near East would eat meat unless it was sacrificed to an idol. It was sacred. So whenever you ate meat, you also were sacrificing. And so therefore there was an incentive. The more you ate, the more you sacrificed. So eat on, pig out. 
There's an incentive. Because the more that you eat, the more that you sacrifice. Same thing with drink. The more you drink, the more you sacrifice. So therefore, drunkenness and gluttony were celebrated because they not only were fun, but they also had spiritual implications. It's no wonder the enemy links these two. And then you add a sexual component to it. It was believed that fertility on earth was dependent upon fertility in, I'll use the word heavens loosely, or the realm of the gods. It was believed that whatever happened on earth was then also mimicked or happened in heaven or happened in the realm of the gods. And therefore, as a part of the worship event in regards to idolatry, there was sensual activity on earth in order, in their minds, for sensual activity to happen in the realm of the gods, which then would produce fertility on earth. So you can imagine what happened. It was just awful. I mean, you think there's some bad stuff going on in our culture? And there is. But you read through like 2 Kings, 1 Kings, like for instance, 2 Kings 23, and you'll see that in the middle of a reform, a king actually has to go through and cleanse the temple because the worship of Yahweh had become so intermingled with these idols that there were actually houses of cult prostitutes built around the temple mount area. Or Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 deals with the issue on a secular setting where believers were visiting the temple Diana as a part of that worship service. There was all sorts of immoral activity, and they thought, crazy as it is, but they thought it had no impact on their soul. So can you seriously tell me that we have no idols today? (laughs) Can you tell me that there's nothing in our culture that's both pleasurable and normal and convenient and self-interested? We don't have any of those things anymore. Oh, no, that's all Old Testament. No, it's not. Absolutely it's not. The enemy has just simply changed the orientation, has changed the object of the idol. But idolatry, as it existed in the Old Testament, still very much exists today. What the enemy does, church, is he weaves together a deadly cocktail of self-concern, convenience, peer pressure, and pleasure. And all he needs people to do, they don't have to abandon their belief in God. They don't have to abandon their belief in Jesus. They don't have to claim to not be a Christian. All they have to do is just add other practical, sensual, self-centered, normal, pleasure-seeking, convenient gods in their life. And he's, he's got us. Idolatry was never about the idol. It was never about the idol. What happened at the base of Mount Sinai was never really about a golden calf. Instead, what it was about was what the people thought the idol would give them. And that's our issue. I don't care what it is that is the controlling factor in your life. There are things that we pursue that give us security give us identity, give us pleasure, give us power, make us feel whole. And those things, apart from the glory of God, can become dominant, can become addicting, and can ruin your life. The lure of idolatry is that these things seem, they seem so right, and your heart says, man, you need this. And the lunacy of it is that it's a deadly trap that leads to despair. So that's what happened. That's 
the matter of idolatry in general, let me now just translate it into our world. I've hinted at this, but let me just drive it home really simply and plainly. What does this mean? Let me give you a few things to think about. First, church, I want you to understand that an idol can simply be anything. You need to look at life through a lens of absolutely anything can be an idol in our lives. It can be something that serves as an alternative to God. An idol is anything that's more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God, anything you ask to give you what only God can give you. There are no limits to what can become an idol. Listen to me. You and I can make an idol of anything. Secondly, Sometimes people make the mistake of thinking that idols are only made of bad things, and that couldn't be further from the truth. More often than not, idols are good things that have gone bad. We take the gifts that God has given us, the things that are meant to to be conduits to turn us back to Him, and we end up using those things and taking those things, and they, they become too important to us. They become a part of our identity, our happiness. Or when they're removed, that's when you really know, when they're removed, suddenly despair or hopelessness sets in. In my pastoral ministry and in my life, I've seen things like drugs, alcohol become idols. I've seen money and power, and possessions become an idol. I've seen the other side as well. People who pride themselves in living frugally or below their their, their, their standard of living or of others. They're proud that they drive a car with 350,000 miles on it. And if anyone thinks that they're living above their raisin, so to speak, they get all, the fangs start to come out. I've seen sex be an idol. I've seen being married be an idol. Affirmation become an idol. I mean, somebody who just, they're like so not whole in Christ. And so you, you give them a word of encouragement and they're like, so that felt so good. And then it's give me more, give me more, give me more, give me more. And they never stop. And then you are married to someone like this or have a relationship with them. And you're like, bro, I can't feed that. Honey, I can't meet that need. You are an inexhaustible well. And it's true because that idol will never, ever be satisfied. I've seen recreation, a business. I've seen kids become an idol. Parents who live their lives vicariously through their kids. I used to have a, I used to be involved in a Christian school. You know the worst time of year was? Junior, senior banquet. And you know why? Not because of the girls. Because the moms, sorry, but they lived vicariously through their kids. Everything had to be just right and perfect. And it was, I'm not talking about helicopter moms. I'm talking like SEAL Team 6 moms who are like in there, you know, like what in the world? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Obviously what's going on here, it's something, this is not just about her. This is about you and her. Dad, you want to know why you go ballistic at a basketball game when your kids don't shoot right or have a foul call? I used to be a high school official. I saw some stuff, right? A lot of stuff. Saw a lot of idols. Family time, expectations, all these things. The things that we want, that's the stuff that can become an idol. If you're a single adult, you're thinking about getting married, maybe you're in a relationship with somebody. Listen, when you're 
whatever you want to call it, dating, courting, I don't care, but here's the, call it this, idle discovery period. Call it that, okay? Seriously, you need to be looking and talking and discovering what are the idols. Because newsflash, marriage does not solve those idols. It makes them worse. Third, an idol becomes apparent when it becomes ultimate. It's anything that you would have in your life that's so important to you that if you had to part with it by your choice or not, it's almost as though you feel like life isn't worth living anymore. It's something that's so fundamental to your happiness, to your identity, to your being other than God. It's like you can't live without this. And it's not like intellectually you understand it, but emotionally you feel this way. Like, I've got to have this. How come they don't like me? Or why won't my kids respect me? Or how come I can't be successful? How come I can't have the body that I always wanted? How come I can't? How come I? How come I? How come? And all those passions and all those pursuits. We're all trying to fill a heart that will never be satisfied. It will never be filled. And it's exactly what Israel was pursuing at the base of the mountain. Fourth, idols offer us promises that are not true. Idols promise us lies. The lure of the idol is this script. You'll be happier with me. You need me. You'll feel safe with me. You deserve me. And ultimately, those promises can then turn very dark. If it's taken away, the script will be, life isn't worth it without me. You're better off dead than to live without me. And that is a lie. See the trap of the enemy? Do you know what the solution to all of this is? And my heart just is so heavy today. Got very few illustrations in here. You know why? Because this, this is like so, I've seen this happen to so many people. And for those of you who right now are in the middle of, of, of a running, a rat race, and you're just, you're just running and running and running, and you've tried relationships and jobs, you've tried different locations, you've tried all sorts of maybe different um, substances to try and squelch this internal issue within you, and in the midst of that, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. The beautiful message of the gospel is that Jesus is the one who can come and give you the identity and the hope and the security and the rest that you really need. And, and, and the offering today of the gospel is this, that if you try and get your identity and your fulfillment and your hope from anything other than God, it won't work. You can only find that in a relationship with Him. And for those of you who know Christ, and you still feel the, the, the tension with idols, like we all do, you just need to realize that you live in a world full of potential idols, and your guard needs to be up. And you need to be looking around and saying, you know what, that's really good, and that made me feel good for a second, but that isn't God. And that really helped me, and man, I really enjoyed that moment. But that's not ultimate. And you've got to be conscious of the more, 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 more drive that happens within the human soul, and the more and more and more drive that happens, absence of God, is a more and more drive that leads to despair and ultimately to ruin. Idolatry is trying to wring trying to wring out of people and power and money and sex and affirmation and position and children and marriage or even ministry. What can really only come from the good news that is found in Jesus. So listen to me. My question today isn't if you have idols. But I know people well enough. It's not if. My question is where are those idols? And how big of a control do they really have over you? 
My caution and my plea with you today is that you would understand that there is a lure and a lunacy when it comes to idolatry. And for some of you, the message from God's word today is simply this. Look, wake up. These idols, this thing that you want, it's going to ruin your life. And you won't ever be happy and you won't ever be satisfied apart from running to Jesus. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, Jesus said, and I will give you rest. Would you pray with me? Father, we feel the tension of this issue because there are so many good things in the world that can so quickly become God things. So help us. Help us right now. Before we end this service, I just wanted to give you a moment because part of the problem with our culture is that we don't stop and think. We don't stop. So I'm inviting you right now just to to ask yourself this question. So what is it that's really controlling me? And I'd invite you just in the quietness of this moment for you to say, Lord, I need to turn from, and you just fill in that blank. I need to turn from allowing blank from controlling me anymore. And even though you've gone back and back and back a hundred times in your lifetime, maybe today would just be another moment for you to say, Lord, I, I want you. I don't want myself anymore. I'm so tired of all of the damage that my idols create. And maybe you just say, Lord, would you help me? Help me to find my identity in you me to find security and safety in you. Help good things, Lord, not to become God things. And while you're just in this attitude of prayer, I know that there has to be some of you, a few of you, who today was something from the Lord directly to you. And I just want you to realize that This Sunday, this message, you being here, is not by accident. Afterwards, there'll be some folks up here who would love to pray with you if there's something going on in your soul. But more than anything, I just want to lovingly say to you, brother, sister, idols, it's a lunacy trip. So Lord, help us to get off this lunatic treadmill that we get on. And thank you that we can run to Christ who can meet all of our needs. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I love you, College Park. God bless you. Thanks for coming today.